Before we begin today's episode of the Modern Law Library, we'd like to welcome our new sponsor, Posh Virtual Receptionists. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Hilary J. Allen, author of the new book, Driverless Finance, Fintech's Impact on Financial Stability. Hilary, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. It's a pleasure to be here. So this was a terrifying read uh, because it really exposed some of the things going on in the financial industry that I didn't know about on top of some things that I did know about uh, when it comes to things like cryptocurrencies and NFTs and and such. Um, Was it your intent to scare the bejesus out of all of us? That was exactly my intent, Lee. When I was writing (laughs) this, I said, I aim to terrify and I'm not just doing that um, because I'm an evil person. I'm saying that I want to terrify people um, because I want to terrify people into action. This kind of stuff happens in the background. As you said, there's stuff going on that you didn't know about. And it's sort of doubly hidden because finance is hard for people to understand and tech is hard for people to understand. And you put finance and tech together, it's very easy for that to evade people's consciousness. But This is something that is really very scary that is happening in the background. And if things go on this way um, for too long, we're going to end up with another financial crisis and then people will be paying attention. But I'd like them to pay attention earlier so we can do something about it before we have to deal with the crisis. So there are six myths that you outline in your book, and I'm just going to read them out for the listeners just one at a time. Number one, innovation is always good. Number two, efficiency is always good. Number three, fintech is too small to talk about or care about. Number four, financial crises are once-in-a-generation events. Number five, my favorite, this time it's different. (laughs) And number six, financial markets will take care of fintech's threats to financial stability on their own without regulation. So I would agree. I think that... Those little six myths or bits of conventional wisdom are out there. Um, If we want to zero in on one, I'd love to talk about efficiency is always good, because I think it's also going to bring up this idea of smart contracts, which uh, attorneys in our audience may already know about. And smart contracts, that sounds great. That sounds really, really efficient. It sounds smart. What are the dangers of these so-called smart contracts? Well, it's funny. Um, I have had many colleagues saying that smart contracts are neither contracts nor smart. Um, So it's some savvy marketing you've got right there. Um, They're not contracts because they're not sort of aiming to be a complete legal document. They're instead just a a computer program that's designed to self-execute upon the receipt of necessary instructions. So you often hear the analogy with a vending machine, right? You, You put, you know, once the vending machine gets the money in and see, you know, receives your choice, then it will give you your selection. So what would be an example of a smart contract that banks may sign with each other? Is it an, if this happens, then immediately do this without involving a human? That's exactly the point. And, and I, should, I should quibble with your framing that banks would sign a smart contract with each other because that's falling into the, the, the sort of the language of real contracts. And these aren't real contracts. Um, but you know, the, the, we're seeing these being turned into loans, for example. So if X happens, for example, if a party doesn't make a payment, then the other party can automatically take some collateral that's posted on the blockchain, for example, um, 
because it will be immediately transferred to their account. And there's no human involved in taking that collateral. The smart contracts are already set up that way. And so that's why you can see that this is sort of fated as this form of efficiency. No one needs to monitor their counterparties. The collateral is already locked away in a blockchain somewhere. If something goes wrong, the collateral will be transferred to, to the loaning party. So that's great as far as it goes. The problem is, and this is why smart contracts are not real contracts, as lawyers, we know that lots of things can go wrong. There can be lots of intervening circumstances. There can be a lot of reasons why we don't want to enforce the contract as written. And so in the book, I use the example of what would happen if the credit default swaps that AI, sorry, yeah, that AIG had issued to Goldman Sachs, what if those had been set up as smart contracts? Basically, these were a huge contributor to the financial crisis of 2008. And ultimately, we were all benefited from the fact that these credit default swaps were not fully enforced by Goldman Sachs against AIG. In other words, Goldman Sachs agreed to exercise some forbearance and not take all of the collateral it was entitled to under these, um, under these swaps. If it had, AIG may have become insolvent um, with ripple effects for our entire economy as early as perhaps 2007. So this is a place where you actually want some flexibility. You want some forbearance. And so efficiency in the name of efficiency of always speed, always faster, always better, that actually doesn't hold up when you're dealing with unanticipated circumstances. Sometimes you need some friction to give time for flexibility. Next, I'd love to dive into innovation is always good with a side helping of this time it's different. <laughs> uh, I think that there have been a lot of attention paid recently to things like NFTs and Bitcoin and people seem very enthused about a lot of these assets. And every time it's explained to me, I think, but that's stupid. Not to put too fine a point on it, when it is explained, well, this is, you own uh, an entry in a ledger that you are the person who has this ape photo that you didn't actually, you didn't draw it, uh, but, but in this ledger, it says you have it and you paid a lot of money for it. And theoretically, someone else will wanna buy this ape photo. It, it doesn't make too much sense to me as a person who, to be honest, I think I took economics pass-fail. Uh, I'm not deeply involved in financial industries. It must make sense to some people, but I would love to hear your take on some of these crypto assets and why this innovation in this space may not be a good idea. First of all, I want to just comment on your, your um, example of the NFTs of the ape pictures. You've actually given it too much credit because you've <laughs> said that if you buy this NFT that you own the ape picture, you don't own the ape picture. Anybody can take that ape picture and do whatever they want with it. All you own is essentially like a digital signature on that ape picture. So you, can, you have bragging rights. You say, I have the NFT that references this ape picture but you can't prevent anybody else from using the ape picture. You do not own the ape picture. This has to be so confusing to copyright attorneys and intellectual property attorneys. Yeah, they, they, there's a whole other side of this debate, which you know I don't profess to know anything about, but right. So you're, you're not actually owning anything there. So for example, um, I heard that Melania Trump is selling NFTs of her hats. You don't get Melania Trump's hats. You just get 
Melania Trump's NFT, suggesting that you have essentially a digital signature relating to that hat. And honestly, if this was something like Beanie Babies or, or Pogs, or if this is something that you are a collector, you like to collect things, maybe you like to collect you know, baseball cards, and there are other people interested in baseball cards, but it's not really a problem because if, if there is a collapse in this small collector's market, that's not going to mean that I can't uh, transfer funds from my accounts to pay my mortgage. You know, nothing, right. it's not so large scale that it'll collapse. Right. And I feel the same way. If, if you're really into collecting digital signatures and that's important to you, then go for it. Um, I think the problem comes from the fact that a lot of the people who are buying these NFTs and other crypto assets, you know, you mentioned Bitcoin, but there, there's a whole universe of cryptocurrencies and tokens out there. And the impetus for people buying them is not to use them, but to sell them for more profit. You know, we, we hear about uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, the Bitcoin was originally promoted as a payments method, but it turned out to be a lousy payments method because its you know, value fluctuates um, too much and, and you know, most merchants don't accept it. So, so that doesn't work as a payments method, but people really latched onto it as an investment. They tried to fix the volatility issue um, with some new type of crypto asset called a stablecoin. Those, again, aren't being used to buy real world goods and services. Instead, they're being used in what's called the DeFi ecosystem, which is basically where we have replicas of financial products and services that are already readily available. But these ones are trading on the blockchain. And the idea is to get rid of traditional intermediaries, but that's not actually working out as planned. Not only are we getting a proliferation of new shady, often shady intermediaries in the DeFi ecosystem, the old intermediaries are interested too. So, you know, um, JP Morgan has its eye on DeFi. Um, we have a bunch of banks that just got together in a consortium to issue a, a stable coin. So really this ties back to the initial part of your question, which is, not all technology is good, right? Sorry, not all innovation is good because if you're innovating to make something more complicated for the purpose of getting intermediaries out of the system, but it is so complex that, complex that you can't use it without adding back both old and new intermediaries, all you've got is worse tech that is less regulated and then you have a bunch of investors who are buying the hype about this being disintermediated, about thinking that this is something different. And then that is driving a bubble in these types of crypto assets, which uh, you know, I share your view that it just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. So I'm gonna bring up another quote from your book, because I think it's going to lead us to our next question. Regulators overseeing a technologically sophisticated industry without technology of their own is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. So we have talked about sort of the, the dangers that exist if uh, there's kind of a Wild West out there. We have regulators, um, but it does not seem like they're being terribly active in this space. And it doesn't seem like we are helping them to be terribly active in this space. Can you talk a little bit about what 
we as a country, as an international uh, group can do to help regulate and make these spaces safer? What do we need to give regulators? That's a really good question. I think regulators need several things. Um, one is jurisdiction, and that's always messy in the United States when we're talking about finance, because we have so many different financial regulators with jurisdiction that's not always well delineated. And so sometimes we have overlapping jurisdiction, which leads to turf wars. Sometimes we have gaps where things tend to fall through the gaps. And you know we're, we're starting to see the regulators trying to size up sort of who has um, authority over what. I think the SEC and the CFTC have the most clear jurisdiction um, over the crypto assets, and the SEC is being um, reasonably assertive in using that jurisdiction. So that's good news. So, so one thing is jurisdiction. Another thing that regulators need is public support, and that is always a challenge. Um, and so, again, that's part of the reason why I tried to terrify people with this book. A lot of people buy into this idea that anything that is technological or innovative is the way of the future and regulators should just get out of the way. Um, it's really interesting that we take that view in finance because we certainly don't take that view when it comes to um, driverless cars, um, hence the pun on the title, driverless finance, right? We, we understand that there are dangers inherent in some new technologies, but we tend to not worry about those so much in the finance context until we actually have a crisis. So if we can generate public support for regulators to take more preemptive steps by voicing our concerns to our le elected representatives and our, you know, to the extent that we comment on regulations and things like that by saying, hey, I think there's something here that I want you to look at, that gives a perch to the regulators to, you know, a place that they can go from without having to worry so much about the backlash of, well, you just don't understand, this is the future, why do you hate the future, why, what don't you understand here? So public support is critical, jurisdiction is critical, and then there's the issue of technological expertise. So, you know, to crypto, you'd ideally have some people working in the regulators who are you know, software programmers, that kind of expertise is expensive. So even, for example, the large banks are struggling to hire some of these people because they are all working for Google. So it can be challenging for agencies who are paying public sector wages to attract people with the necessary expertise. So I think there is some interesting opportunity there. There is an agency that we have in the United States, one of our many, called the Office of Financial Research. And I would like to see that rebuilt as a innovative um, interdisciplinary expertise hub. That's something that would also enable the regulators to really move in this space is having more of the expertise because then they're not as susceptible to the critiques of, oh, you just don't understand this. They can retort, yes, we do. And speaking of understanding, so you work for a law school, you have law school students before you all the time. How do you discuss this area of our financial system in terms of what place lawyers have in it? Um, what should uh, attorneys who are working in corporate law or who are interested in this space be concentrating on to make sure that they're ready to meet the challenges that this is going to present? It's a really good question. And I think for students, 
I aim to provide with regards to the tech, the same introduction that I try to provide in my other business law classes, which is an introduction to the vocabulary. You know, at law school, we spend a lot of time learning about law, uh, but business law has its own vocabulary, the world of business and, and the, the, the language that, that that industry speaks. And that could be as foreign to students as learning the law. And then on top of that, you know, the technology can be very foreign. I say this with the caveat that, of course, I have some students who know much more about the tech than I do because they're very invested in it. And we have great conversations um, where I try to explain why I find the technology problematic and they try to explain to me why they think it's more revolutionary. And we have great debates about that. Um, but I think for the most part, students just want to understand what's going on because they hear a lot about it. But, you know, I think like like anybody. Um, they hear a lot about it, but don't really understand what's going on. And, and part of the reason why they don't understand, I think, is that people expect there to be more there there. And the fact that there isn't more there there sometimes makes people wonder that they're missing something. But in fact, they're not missing something. There are a lot of flaws in this technology and these business models. And so part of the reason for writing the book was to give people the confidence to say, actually, no, I do understand this. Um, and this is where I think it doesn't hold up. So my teaching strategy really is very similar to my strategy in the book, which is just, just, just try to lay it out there in accessible terms. So I do think that we should give a little space to the arguments that are being made about why these kinds of technologies are important. You know, in uh, this podcast, in the legal spaces, we talk a lot about access to justice. And obviously, that is um, a huge area of need. In the financial arena, there is kind of a similar, you know, access to services, access to banking. Uh, there are many people who uh, cannot get loans. And some of that is because of these old systems um, having biases. We know that, for example, um, Black Americans were not offered mortgage rates that were available to white Americans in the past and probably still now. Uh, there are inherent um, biases in the system, and, and that is a problem. So in this brave new world, aren't we just offering people more access to uh, services that used to only be reserved for the already very wealthy. Lee, this is really important because the rhetoric around fintech, and I'm not just talking about crypto here, I'm talking about using artificial intelligence to approve people for mortgages, et cetera. The rhetoric around all of that is that this is going to improve access to financial services. And it starts from a place, from a critique that I really agree with, which is that our financial system has failed our most vulnerable. It has failed them on a, an individual basis in terms of just the, the cost of accessing financial services. And it's also failed them on a systemic uh, level. When you talk about financial crises, who they harm, disproportionately, it is the most vulnerable members of our society. So it is absolutely correct to say that our financial system has not done right by many members of our society. And I absolutely think that needs to be fixed. My concern is that this critique is being used as window dressing for 
financial products and services, new technologically um, savvy financial products and services that are far more complex than what most people need, therefore contain a lot of risks. And so at best, they're sort of unsuitable products. And at worst, we're seeing a lot of predatory behaviors. So if you look at who, you know, the, the statistics on who are buying um, crypto assets, you know, it's, it's disproportionately more vulnerable members of our society. And these crypto asset markets are rife with scams. And there's so little transparency. Basically, you know, for, for a crypto asset, if you want to know what the risks are, you need to be able to essentially audit the computer code of a smart contract. That's not something that most people can do. And even good programmers will miss things auditing um, the, the software of a, a smart contract. So there are just so many opportunities for predation there. And when we talk about using artificial intelligence to screen people for loans, those you know, the, the machine learning algorithms that, that, that perform that activity, they're learning from existing data. So if we've got decades of data that has been biased against certain members of our society and charged them more for um, financial services on the basis of their race or something other, some other quality like that, then the, the, the machine learning algorithms are going to learn from that. They're not going to fix this bias. So there is very important and hard work to be done in terms of increasing access to financial services, but this isn't it. Um, I think really the guiding light for all of you know, how to actually fix financial conclusion, sorry, financial inclusion is simplicity rather than unnecessary complexity. That's fascinating. Can you get into that a little bit more? So simplicity, what would a more simplistic system look like? So, for example, we have large swathes of the country who are unbanked, who don't have um, bank accounts, or they do have bank accounts, but they often rely on alternative financial services um, because, for example, their paycheck doesn't clear quickly enough if they deposit it in their bank account, so they might go to a check cashing service and pay extra for that. So what I'm looking for is real-time payments to existing bank accounts so that people's paychecks are available in their accounts immediately so that they don't have to go to a check cashing service. Or simply providing people who are unbanked with low-cost accounts at banks. Those are the services that are really needed not strange, you know, crypto um, loans in a DeFi ecosystem that's populated with rug pulls and honeypot, honeypot scams. And we have been successful in the past with tackling things like payday lenders, which we saw were just incredibly predatory and significantly harmed many, many people. But you had something interesting in the book, which was that as we try and innovate in the regulatory space, so we try and create a system where regulators can provide oversight that increases safety but doesn't totally throttle uh, positive innovation, we need to understand that they may initially fail in some ways too. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, because I think that it's easy 
for the public to immediately lose faith in the government when we see a program that appears to have failed. Again, I think this is a really important issue, and it's something that I'm actually working on right now in follow-up research. And it's the idea that the, the government needs to be given some permission to fail. The innovation process is always centered around failures. You hear mantras from, you know, from uh, Silicon Valley companies like, you know, fail fast, move, move fast and break things. That's integral to the private sector innovation process. A venture capital firm counts itself lucky if 10 to 20% of its investments turn out to be winners. It expects a large proportion to be duds. So if we expect any innovation at all from the public sector, and this innovation could simply be in terms of new regulatory strategies to deal with new technological problems, it could be the use of technology by the regulatory agencies themselves. And there's, um, in recent years, we've seen a lot of regulatory agencies coming up with their own soup tech, supervisory technologies. And, you know, I've said that not all innovation, not all innovation is good, but some innovation is good. Innovation is needed at this point for the financial regulators to keep up with the industry. And I don't think regulators are being given the same permission to fail that the private sector is for their innovation. If you have one mistake in the financial regulatory world, you know, it's Solyndra and that's all you hear about. So I think you asked me earlier about, you know, what we can give the regulators to help them do their job. Part of what we can give them is some permission to waste a little money on their innovation process because that's how innovation happens. Um, we can give them a little grace when the innovation that is designed doesn't do exactly what it was supposed to do uh, in the initial specifications. That kind of grace, I think, is critical um, to encouraging the right kind of innovation that can make our system safer and to keep investors and consumers better protected. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And when we return, I'll still be with Hillary J. Allen, author of Driverless Finance, and we are going to tackle some data privacy concerns. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Hillary J. Allen, author of Driverless Finance, FinTech's Impact on Financial Stability. And let's talk about the privacy issues when giant companies like Amazon or Google or Facebook or Apple also become interested in providing financial services. Uh, you point out that banks are already barred from using certain kinds of data uh, to make their decisions, but it seems to be a little bit more of a wild west when it comes to these big four. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what these companies are starting to do in the financial services sector? I know that I've suddenly started being 
offered things like, oh, well, PayPal will immediately uh, take a look at your credit and, and see if you can spread this into four payments, things like that. Um, is it as simple as that? Are they doing deeper things? Let's talk about what the technology companies are getting up to. Sure. Uh, I'm going to start with the caveat that I am not a privacy law scholar, and that is a very thorny, thorny place to be when you're looking at um, privacy issues and the big tech companies. So in this book, I really engage with a small slice of privacy issues um, as they pertain to financial stability. So the important thing I think to note about the banks is they can use your information that they collect from you for financial products and services, but banks aren't allowed to enter into um, other lines of business that are sort of more commercial. So, you know, banks can't sell you pencils. Um, so the use of your data is, or the utility of your data to the bank is limited because the most they can use it for is financial products and services. If you're talking about a Facebook or now Meta or Amazon or Google, the information that they have from you about you is voluminous. It covers you know, all your purchasing decisions or all your search decisions or all your social media history. Now, if they can use that information to start providing you financial services, that is going to be incredibly lucrative to them and they are going to swell in size. And I think that the, the natural entry point that the tech companies are going to try um, for financial services is payments. They already have so many users. And so if they can market um, payment services to them, then they'll build from there. Once they have data about your payment history, they may turn that into as you said, credit offerings. We know about all the payments you make. That gives us a picture of your financial history. We might make you a loan based on that and so on from there. The problem with that is this makes these, these tech companies bigger than they already were and even more critical to the operation of our economy than they already were. If, if these are companies that we depend on, not just to search for things, but to pay for things, if there's a problem there, I think a bailout is inevitable. And a bailout of one of these companies would be just a nightmare. How do you, how do you hive off the parts that need to be bailed out? Do you have to bail out Amazon's entire e-commerce business as well as its payment service? Do you just bail out Amazon in the United States? These are global entities. So the costs of bailing out these particular firms are, I think, terrifying. Um, they would put all the bailout money from 2008 just to shame. And so we really have to be asking ourselves, do we want these entities using our information to offer, sorry, to offer financial services in a way that will lead them to grow and become systemically important providers of financial services? And the answer to me is a clear no. And so that's something that I think Congress is very interested in. And I hope that they act to keep set up a wall, essentially, that keeps these tech companies out of providing financial services. So one of the things I just feel you expressing is a phrase that I, as someone who lost their job during the Great Recession, develop hives when I hear, which is the old too big to fail. So... After 2008 and 2009, we saw 
the consequences of an entity being too big to fail. But we were able to stave off disaster. Um, and I want to get back to this other piece of conventional wisdom that you mentioned, which is this idea that, well, you know, this is that kind of financial crisis is a once in a generation event. And your message is that there is no law of the universe that says this. Uh, so can you please talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And in fact, history suggests that financial crises often do occur reasonably frequently. And perhaps the period between the Great Depression and the financial crisis of 2008 was in many ways an aberration born of the good regulation adopted after the Great Depression, which sort of gradually was worn away starting in the 70s. So before the deposit insurance was uh, adopted in 1934, I believe it was, we used to have financial panics pretty regularly. And deposit insurance doesn't apply to a lot of these new financial products and services. And so if they become important to how our financial system operates, then you know we may be facing another crisis. And, and there's other reasons. It's not just about deposit insurance. Things um, tend to fail bigger and faster when there's computers involved speeding it up. And we've talked about smart contracts. Um, there's other aspects of new technology that are speeding things up. And I think we should expect that financial crises will become a more common event if we don't take steps up front to limit the, the speed and the complexity of what we see happening in the financial system. So one challenge to that may be, um, and, you, and you you point this out, there are people who say, yeah, these collapses are inevitable, but that just means we roll with it. You know, we accept that that is uh, one of the dangers of having an economy and we, we just, we don't try and fight it. We just accept, yep, there are going to be crashes. Some people will lose and you know, we will then have another rise and, and it'll be fine. And this is just a pattern. Uh, but you don't take that kind of fatalistic approach. No, I don't. I don't think that sort of this business cycle theory that this is essentially a force of nature uh, makes much sense, given that the economy is really a function of human action. There's no law of nature that applies to that. There's no law of science. So it's the confluence of human action that makes this boom bust happen. And I think the people who say, well, you know, we just got to accept it and live with it are frankly often people who are privileged. Because if you look at recovery from financial crises, generally the people who are on top come out okay. And the people who are not on top live with the effects of these, um, these crises for decades, if not longer. So I think it's really important to recognize that human behavior is what causes financial crises. And that we have structures, the law and other structures as well, that can influence human behavior. And so there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I don't sort of purport to say that we know exactly what to do to prevent financial crises. But given the depths of harm that they cause for people, it makes sense to take common sense steps to make crises less likely or less severe if they do occur. 
Now, ideally, there will be some people listening to this podcast episode who, you know, are change makers, who have influence within the government, perhaps. But for the average citizen going about their day, are there things on an individual level we can do to either advocate for regulation of these spaces or to make ourselves safer? I think at a very basic level, um, one thing that people can try and do is resist the FOMO, (laughs) the fear of missing out, which is driving so much of the growth of the crypto economy. I know this comes from a, a place that I really understand. And again, it comes back to the financial crisis of 2008. You have a financial crisis, destroys the economy, destroys people's lives, and yet the bankers seem to walk away relatively unscathed. And that says to people watching, the system is rigged, the system isn't fair. And so I very much appreciate that people are looking for a way to get rich outside of the system, right? I understand where the incentive is coming from, but please know that the people who are outside of the, who are purporting to be outside of the system are the same people who were exploiting people the last time around, right? The, the, the money that is being made in crypto is not being evenly distributed. Now, Certainly, there are people, you know, who are small time players who are making money. That's like um, at a casino, you can win money in a casino, but the house always wins and the house always wins in crypto, too. And the house in crypto is not some utopian ideal of, you know, equals. It's the same people that were the house in 2008. So unfortunately, You can't get rich quick in crypto. And if you do, it's just the same as gambling. But with the potential negative consequence that you may be inflating an asset bubble that may hurt not just you, but all the people around you if when it busts. So I'd encourage people to really think about whether they really want to get involved in investing in this type of stuff. And then if they want to go beyond that, um, you know, start talking to your representative saying that you, you'd like some scrutiny in this area, that you'd like some scrutiny on financial technology, that you're worried about there being another financial crisis because of all this opaque stuff that's going on in tech, and that you would like some scrutiny on it and you will support them if they look into this from a critical perspective. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. How can people get your book, Driverless Finance, FinTech's Impact on Financial Stability? It is widely available from independent booksellers as well as the um, the regular sellers. So if you just go online and Google, uh, actually, my husband made me a really great website. <gasps> Tell us the URL. It's www.driverlessfinancebook.com. You'll find more information about what's in the book, sellers of the book, testimonials from people like Sarah Bloom Raskin, all the information that you need is there. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you have a book you'd like me to take a look at, possibly for a future episode, email your suggestions to books at abajournal.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.